In the eye of the climate crisis, we all know what is our final aim, what is our final target. Make or break for the planet. We must double down on our efforts to cut emissions and mitigate the impact of the climate crisis. We have to look forward because the future is now. Let future generations say when it mattered the most, we made a difference. When I was four years old, I nearly drowned. I was paddling around on a lake in an inflatable motorboat, even had an inflatable engine on the back. My grandfather was tasked to, to watch out for me, but as I paddled, he had meandered over to talk to a bunch of people. And for some reason, I slipped through the hole and I fell down into the water. I remember it like it was yesterday. The dark green water, it was almost like you were looking through a, a bottle of spruce beer. I could feel mud on my feet, and the only light was from the surface where the sunlight was. I pushed up and broke the surface and slipped back down, repeated it, and I was probably sinking for my third and final time when someone saved me. I feared the water for years after, and even now I still like to be within a few feet of the shoreline. Fast forwarded to today, and I'm seeing a pattern with some of the guests I've had on the show that also survived a near-death experience. Caleb Dahlgren from the Humboldt Broncos. W. Mitchell won his motorcycle accident. The gas tank exploded all over him. Mark Hennick saved by a man in a brown coat as he stood over a bridge contemplating suicide. Dan Ariely, who survived an explosion. Or Rick Hansen, whose Olympic dreams and use of his legs ended in a moment in a truck crash. I think the difference with them compared to me is they were older than a four-year-old floating on an inflatable. They had context. They had pieced together cause and effect. And today, all of these people have a different appreciation for life. And not just their life, but life around them. They have a sharper lens. They understand fragility and mortality. They've been on the doorstep of death and through some form of miracle or intervention or science or will or resilience or maybe all of the above, they're here today. And they value what they've been given. And with gratitude, they invest their time giving back to make our world a better place. The essential question I have for you today is, does it take a near-death experience to value what we've been given on planet Earth, this gift of life? What if the existence of the entire human race was knocking at the doorstep of death? Would we have the resilience and will to save ourselves and all who inhabit our planet? Would we treat the majesty of life as a once-in-a-lifetime gift? Or would we continue to focus more on what is materialistic versus what matters? Today, in this special edition of Chatter That Matters, I'm going to take you to that doorstep of death on a path polluted by humanity, ravaged by climate catastrophes and the anger of Mother Nature. But this isn't doom and gloom. I'm then going to invite a very special guest who's going to offer us a road back. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is John Stackhouse, a nationally best-selling author, one of the world's leading voices on innovation and economic disruption. He's a senior vice president in the office of the CEO at RBC, and he leads the organization's research and thought leadership on subjects like economic, technological, and social change. Previously, John Stackhouse was editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail, editor of Report on Business, 
He's a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute and the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy, and he sits on the board of Queen University. John, not your first time with me, and I hope not the last, but welcome back to uh, Chatter That Matters. Thank you, Tony. I, I sure hope it's not the last either, but always great to be with you. So we're going to get into a major paper that was authored by your group on climate change and being released as the world leaders meet to discuss yet again what needs to be done. But before we get into that, I just want to tap into your brain as a futurist. Humans seem to be more divided than any other time in their history. And climate change, whether you're a believer or a disbeliever, is one of the key drivers. Why is that? I don't think humans are more divided than ever, and certainly not more divided over climate or climate change. People accept that climate change is real. Uh, They accept that it's human-caused. The big debate is about what to do. And that's a really important and healthy debate to have. There isn't one approach to solving climate change. There's not one approach to getting to net zero. There's many different approaches. It's important that we debate those, that we hear different points of view on what works, what doesn't, but that we also be mindful of the pretty urgent action that we need to take. In other words, we can't debate this for year, year on year, but we have to listen to these different perspectives on how we go about addressing climate change. Let me push back and saying, okay, I, I'm not saying the world's divided 50-50, but you can certainly go to social media in that hailstorm and have people say that climate change is just a natural heating and cooling of the planet, or there's more carbon created through volcanoes than human beings. It's not all us. So, I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric out there that challenges science. Do you think that there's enough people now believing that we can impact change versus still having these breaks on it? Yeah, I do. It is very rare, if at all, that a mainstream political party doesn't take climate change seriously, doesn't have a well-thought-out policy around it. Again, different approaches, uh, which is great in a democracy to have choice, but no one's standing up trying to get a critical mass of people behind them saying, hey, this stuff uh, ain't for real. I, I, I think that's a fringe part of society that gets more ventilation, if I can put it that way, on social media than it might have in previous times. So when I my kids were younger and they were overwhelmed and they thought things were insurmountable, and at times they were for their age and everything they were, had to put out, I often said, you know, the easiest way to tackle it is to break things down into pieces, to go after bits versus trying to bite everything off at once. Do you think that that is one of the strategies we need to think about going forward is that if we, instead of being just overwhelmed by all that's coming out, the planet heating and the climate change, that each one of us really takes little bits and does our part? Totally agree, Tony. Break it down. Break it down to something that is manageable and just manage it bit by bit because the challenge is overwhelming. It's daunting. It's beyond many of our imagination. I think, Tony, that's one of the reasons people sort of grab at straws to cast out on some of the science or some of the arguments because it's just too overwhelming. People feel like they're being told the planet is going to explode in eight years, that we're uh, literally on fire across the planet, that we have to change our lives and lifestyles radically. One of the things we're trying to convey in, the, in, in our report, the $2 trillion transition, is that this is actually an opportunity. It's not something to be fearful of. This is something that Canada can lead in. It's a chance for every sector of the economy to reimagine itself, uh, to rejuvenate, and a chance for every Canadian to play a role 
but we can only do that by breaking it down. So we start off with this number, $2 trillion, because that's what we figure is going to need to be in invested. It's not a cost, it's an investment over the next 30 years. But just to give you a sense of how <laughs> big that number is, if you tried to count to $2 trillion, it would take you 60,000 years. But we broke it down 30 years, 60 to $80 billion a year. Still, that's a number none of us can count to, but that's 2% of GDP. Anyone who's been in business knows that you know a good company reinvesting 2% of its uh, revenue into development is going to thrive. Uh, all of us who put aside 2% to save for our retirements, for instance, are probably going to have a better retirement. So how do we as a country find that 2% to make it a reasonable investment? You're going to get a, your money back and a return on it, but there's also a climate return on it uh, in terms of reducing emissions. What motivated RBC to take this on, given that there's so many other areas of the economy that we could also use your thought leadership? Well, well hopefully we're still helping to inform conversations on those other areas. But climate is the most challenging issue of our times. It's the biggest economic issue probably of the next quarter century. We're a bank and always thinking about where the economy is going long-term as well as short-term. And the changes because of climate are going to be significant in every sector. But we also think there's a significant opportunity for Canadians to invest in a different kind of future, to invest in technologies that are going to literally drive the future, but also wire the future to create those technologies and scale them and sell them to the world. We need to align private investment behind, those, behind these industry strategies to help finance the transition efforts, which means building the confidence of investors so that the financial risk is reduced. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. One of the, the challenges, Tony, for the Canadian economy, when you look back over the last quarter century, is productivity and competitiveness. We have been losing our edge. We are not as efficient a country or an economy as we need to be to compete with the world. Here's a chance for us to up our competitive game by reducing the costs that requires to run businesses, to run the economy, uh, by creating technologies that can be sold to the world uh, and are going to be in huge demand to the world. We're saying $2 trillion for Canada. Lots of really smart people are saying 50 to $100 trillion is going to be spent over the next quarter century globally. The cliche, uh, skate to where the puck's going, this is where the puck's going. My special guest is John Stackhouse, best-selling author, former editor-in-chief of the Globe and Mail. And today, John is in the office of the CEO of RBC and quarterbacks their research on economic, technological, and social change. John, RBC just released a paper titled $2 trillion transition, Canada's road to net zero. You talked about how big that number is. Tell me what went into this paper. So we broke down the challenge. We looked at the fundamental challenge of emissions. Uh, Canada has roughly 730 megatons, uh, that's 730 million tons of greenhouse gas emissions, uh, carbon dioxide, methane, and other uh, greenhouse gases, which is you know tenth in the world. So a pretty significant uh, amount. We're a small country, but uh, we can be a heavy emitter. We are also committed to net zero as a country. And we wanted to understand, how do we get from 7.30 to zero? Uh, that's a really interesting challenge because Canada has been committing to 
somehow plateauing uh, or even reducing those emissions decade after decade. And decade after decade, we've fallen short. So what needs to be done differently to get from 730 down to zero? So we broke it down by areas of emission, sources of emission, uh, looked at the technologies that are available in those areas, uh, pulled together, you know, studied studies on this across all sectors to figure out what the cost would be whether it's to build carbon capture for the oil sands or to build electric charging infrastructure for uh, EVs to run across the country or to retrofit four and a half million homes across Canada, which uh, needs to be uh, done in the next, uh, next several years, and added up the total, and that's where we got to two trillion. Then started to examine where's the money going to come from, because we've just spent a bundle of money through governments uh, and are now more than a trillion dollars in debt. Surely we don't add another $2 trillion to, uh, to that number. But most of this can come and will come from private sources. This is private investment. Carbon capture in the oil sands is going to be co-financed in all likelihood by both uh, governments and the private sector, but the private sector is going to have to carry a lot of that weight. Same with EV charging stations. Same with all of our homes. Maybe we get a tax incentive for it, Fortunately, most of this money is investment that is going to come from the private sector, and it's going to come from investors looking for a market rate of return. And in the range of opportunities that we outline in the report, there's plenty of opportunity for those, uh, for those investments. We also have a glut of savings. Uh, in fact, this is true ac around the world. So this is a good opportunity for individuals as well as pension funds and the like to channel, uh, channel those savings into productive assets that will uh, grow over a long period of time, like a quarter, quarter century. It's also going to require households, all of us, to be investing in our homes. We, you know, we outline how four and a half million homes are going to need uh, various degrees of retrofits, windows and insulation, but uh, also different kinds of wiring uh, to replace other sources of energy, uh, even neighborhood heating systems, which communities can build. All of that can be funded uh, through homeowners because we all understand the asset value of a renovation. We may not like renovations while we go through them, but we know it tends to add value to our homes and we know that that tends to add value to our homes, and that's going to continue through this green transition. One of the things I was impressed with your report, that it, it wasn't heady, that you, you even talked about things like, if we treated our fruits and vegetables the way like we treat dairy and meat, in other words, don't waste them, it would have a profound impact on the carbon we released. Just share a little bit of that with us, because I thought that was a, something I could action as an individual. It's crazy how much food we waste. I mean, and we all know this as individuals, but if you just think back to the last couple of days or try to stretch your mind to the last week, how much food have you thrown out? How much food is sitting in your green bin or did you leave on a plate at a restaurant? Thankfully, we're able to go back to restaurants. That in aggregate is a significant contributor to climate change. Hard to believe, but growing food uh, requires greenhouse gas emissions. That can be carbon dioxide. It, it's a lot of methane uh, through livestock, but uh, also through natural gas, which many uh, farms rely on. That's not necessarily a bad thing. There are ways to abate or uh, offset those emissions, but we can also reduce them significantly through smarter consumption. 
You know, I'm a big believer that when we quantify a problem, we often act. Not a massive number, but for example, a bad report card says, you know, I'm going to get my kid a tutor because they're just not grabbing French or uh, scale tipping the wrong way. It says, I better get back on some exercise and diet. Fitbit tells me I need to do another walk. Should we be putting more effort in creating these data points for individuals so that they realize that what they're doing does make a difference? What gets measured gets managed. I mean, that's business 101. And you've just nailed one of the huge opportunities for Canada is how to, how to break this down for consumers. Way, way, way too much of the conversation right now around climate is on the supply side. It is focused on the sources of things like energy and food uh, that need to be addressed. Um, I'm not uh, minimizing that. But not enough attention is being put on the demand side because all of that supply is in response to us demanding it, whether it's how we heat our homes, what we're driving, how we like to get around, how we travel. And the more we demand change, the more the great innovators in the world are going to come up with change. And consumers respond to exactly what you've said, Tony, to data, to understanding what we're contributing. And just think of the power of the technologies that you just mentioned, the Fitbit or electric vehicles. Uh, think of what Tesla is able to, to inform you with uh, if you ever get inside one uh, in terms of what you can be doing to optimize uh, how you drive and the fuel that you consume. So basic information, and we do have the technology, is going to allow us as consumers to make smarter and smarter decisions. Same with food purchases. When you're able to scan items on the grocery shelf with your phone and find out the source, you know, where did this coffee bean get grown or this package of coffee beans get grown and what's the GHD, GHD count uh, for it? I'd like to know and maybe I buy this bag over that bag. It becomes as powerful as, uh, as price point. One other thing is that your paper weighs in with some real policy and priorities, almost political in stature. Do you think it's it's really the, a force that we're going to see around the world where the private sector is going to try to lend a stronger voice in terms of where we invest as a country? I think we have to. And I think most governments want that. They want informed voices. Um, we're not dictating to anyone, but we do think we're able to bring together and bring to the fore some pretty important uh, information and insights. And then attached to that, ideas, suggestions, recommendations on what uh, policymakers in the public and private sector can do. But one of the blunt challenges in the climate change debate in 2021 going into 2022 is that we've been at this for 30 years, um, well, more than 30 years, but 30 years in a very active way as a world, and governments have fallen down. Therefore, expectations for the private sector have gone up and people are looking to business to come up with ideas for the public good. And we take that responsibility very seriously. We come back, I ask John Stackhouse to share the six pathways that can lead Canada to net zero. All will require determination and resilience. There's no question that Canada, along with a number of other countries, would have liked stronger language and stronger commitments on the fight against climate change than others. But we did make significant, significant progress on recognizing 1.5 degrees as the ambition we need to share. Hi. 
Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. A big shout out to the RBC Climate Blueprint. It's a coordinated strategy designed to accelerate clean economic growth, and it includes providing $500 billion in sustainable financing by 2025. Net zero matters to RBC. They're basically saying, look, we'll want to do less. We want to do less, but we can't uh, if we want to keep our economies running. The United States will be able to meet the ambitious target I set. The United States is not only back at the table, but hopefully leading by the power of our example. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. My special guest, John Stackhouse, best-selling author and one of Canada and the world's voices when it comes to speaking about our future. John, your report identifies six pathways that lead us to the road to net zero, four outline ways to cut emissions from buildings, transportation, industry, and agriculture. But you also state that even if we all drove electric cars and lived in solar-powered homes, rethought livestock management, captured more carbon from smokestacks, we'd still have emissions and the two pathways most essential to fulfilling our net zero ambitions are in the electricity and oil and gas sectors. For a bank like RBC to put a spotlight on a resource industry requires courage and conviction. So let's start there. What do we need to do in these sectors? Let's start with oil and gas because it is a sector that wants to transform and in many ways is already accelerating in transformation in ways that often the public doesn't fully appreciate. And as with any business or sector that is transforming, the best way to accelerate that is to invest in it. It's not to starve it, not to shut it down. And we think it's really important for Canada, but also for all sorts of organizations to be investing literally, but also figuratively, in the oil and gas sector to accelerate its transition to net zero. The oil and gas sector has to play a leading role if Canada is going to get to net zero. Uh, It is a significant source of emissions, so uh, you can't shut it down tonight without causing massive, almost unthinkable social and political and economic chaos. So the question is, how do we manage the transition rationally, reasonably, Uh, with a focus on getting to net zero. I think that's what many leaders in the sector want to do, and and many actually are doing it. But politically, I would say it's a football that gets punted around because when you want to make a statement that you're doing things about climate change, that seems to be the first place that people point fingers. Absolutely. So how do we make sure our political leaders and our business leaders and our climate activists and our consumers are all in step? We have to recognize that There's nothing inherently bad about oil or gas. They are parts of our earth. Our concern surely is emissions and emissions that come from oil and gas. And I'm not trying to be rhetorically cute here. Our goal is to reduce emissions. And the question is, how do we reduce emissions most effectively? Our view is, let's get on with that. Let's figure out what the obligations are for the sector in terms of emissions, what's needed to get there. This is classic business thinking, make a plan, uh, and then figure out the investments that you need for that plan, and then hold yourself to account. Not entirely that simple, but it's not that complicated either. Let's move to agriculture. Marie Lavery, who's the head of Export Development Canada, one of my podcasts, cited Canada can become a superpower in agriculture and realize all the economic benefits that come with it. 
We have water, we have land, we have a brand, global brand that stands for efficacy and trust. Can we achieve her ambitions and also our carbon targets? As an exporting nation, and we export a lot of our oil and gas as well, we should be pushing the world to recognize the total benefit that that can contribute to the world. And by that, I mean, we are producing, whether it's food, uh, think of the proteins uh, and grains that we produce and ship to Asia uh, that feed people there in a arguably more climate efficient way than food sources from other places. Similarly, with ga natural gas going to Asia or oil going to the United States, net-net, that may be more efficient to the planet than sources of energy from, uh, from other places. How do we get recognized for that and certainly not penalized for it when we're producing uh, any kind of resource for the world? I'm going to go back to the social media slingshots. It's not hard for people to suddenly frame Canada's oil as dirty oil. And we know that sometimes that sources other people that are in the oil and gas business. So how do we counter that? If we're making the right steps, if we're becoming better at how we manage our carbon, how we manage our emissions, how do we make sure we frame that so that what we're doing is recognized as, a, as, as an export nation? It's one of our big challenges. A big element of it is data. It is better measuring and showing how we're doing. And the industry's, I think, very keen on this, but has to accelerate what it does to say, this is the emissions count of a barrel of oil from different parts of Canada. And measure that, please, against the emissions count for a barrel of oil elsewhere. And the more we can get that into the hands of consumers, the better informed those consumers are, are, are going to be. And I have to imagine the better, the better private sector will be to try to continue to improve on those benchmarks. Absolutely. If, <laughs> absolutely. What gets measured gets managed. Let me touch on a couple of the other ones. The buildings. You know, Canada needs to heat and cool their homes to survive our climate. What's your pathway in terms of what we do with buildings going forward? We're a pretty inefficient country uh, in terms of energy. Most of us probably know this uh, every time we look at uh, our latest heating bill. There's all sorts of technologies, um, some of them not new, some of them quite new, that allow us to better manage the energy required to keep us at a reasonable degree of comfort. In addition to the technologies for our homes, we need to Think about the home itself. How big should our homes be? How should they be designed, not house by house, but neighborhood by neighborhood, community by community? We continue to sprawl in many cities in this country without a lot of thought on the carbon consequence, the climate consequence. I think increasingly urban planners are looking to that and people who are buying homes, and it's going to be a different generation pretty soon who are going to be the dominant home buyers are going to be factoring in the uh, carbon footprint, literally, of the home that they're, uh, that they're purchasing. Transportation. I have to imagine two cars in every driveway is not a road to net zero. What other changes are you proposing that we need to make so that we can do our part to help us get to where we need to go? Well, if those two cars are EVs, uh, it could be entirely sustainable. And the whole industry is focused on ensuring that come the 2030s, we're going to have every type of vehicle that most of us enjoy in an EV form uh, and produced at scale in a way that's affordable and competitive with prices that we're, we're accustomed to. But do we have the grid for that? Well, that's the big challenge is uh, transforming, literally transforming our infrastructure, starting with sources of electricity. Uh, we argue in our report that we're going to need to double at least the amount of electricity production in the country. And that's probably going to need to come from the full suite of sources, hydro, uh, nuclear, 
natural gas in certain forms, uh, wind and solar. We're going to need infrastructure to get that electricity to the charging stations, and we're going to need charging stations all over the country. This is going to require a massive investment. The capital is probably there for it if the right terms are uh, in place. But I'm concerned about the regulatory environment and how slow we tend to move in this country with any kind of project. But we're going to have to think a little bit differently about our approach to permitting to ensure that we have these sorts of projects moving to operation probably more quickly than we're accustomed to if we're going to get to that supply of electricity that we think we're going to need in the 2030s. So as you talk about this infrastructure, a lot of it points to your sixth pathway, your final pathway, which is heavy industry, cement and other things that are involved. How do we work in step with that sector as we're building all of this so that we're not taking two steps forward and three steps back. It's so fascinating when when you talk to people about climate change and source of greenhouse gas emissions, everyone rattles off oil and gas, maybe they mention agriculture. Very few of us appreciate heavy industry, as you as you called it, steel and cement, for instance, which are huge energy hogs. Um, as probably a lot of listeners know, it takes a ton of heat to make steel. And it uh, consumes a lot of traditional energy that produces a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So even if we shut down other parts of the economy, most of us still want uh, you know, steel frame buildings uh, and cement, and that's going to require a certain amount of energy production that is hard to replicate through renewables. Not many solar fields can run a blast furnace right now. But what's exciting about the transition is how much technology innovation is going on because smart companies see where things are going. And the steel industry sees the opportunity uh, in something called green steel to produce steel with very little GHG footprint that makes that steel more competitive in the world. Electricity providers are also realizing that, hey, if we can uh, sell electricity, and we see this here in Ontario and Quebec and elsewhere in Canada, that is green so that we have a green grid, then heavy industries that do rely on the grid are going to see locating in Ontario or Quebec or elsewhere in Canada that has a green grid to be a competitive advantage versus locating somewhere where the electricity comes from, let's say, let's say coal. Here in Glasgow, we expect again for the High Ambition Coalition to ensure that the world delivers fully on the promise of Paris. It is a conference about the future of our planet, the future of our states and of mankind. We are committed to do more. Further reducing emissions will be challenging, especially as we move closer to net zero. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest is John Stackhouse, who's Senior Vice President at RBC, leads their organizational research and thought leadership on economic, technological, and social change. The G20 sounded like a fairly weak communique, as opposed to what a lot of people were hoping to hear, which was leaders standing strong. And then when I see them throwing coins into a fountain for luck <laughs> and flying there on private planes, I, I really question is whether this is a political circus or is this a time when we're finally going to take action? Yeah, it's such a dangerous moment, Tony. I have the same fear that public trust, which is essential 
for this kind of transition because all of us have to be part of it. And if there isn't public trust, we're gonna we're gonna duck out, and then the whole thing is going to fall fall short. Political leaders really need to be mindful of that. It's not about scoring points with the media. It's about helping 40 million Canadians or 400 million Americans see themselves in this transition and want to be part of it, regardless of who's in power. And these things are always designed to look successful. No one comes out of a summit saying, whoops, that was a failure. This one was really uh, kind of a letdown, I think, for most observers. There was hopes that there would be a bolder commitment to net zero. And the carbon intensive economies of the G20, uh, like China and Russia and Saudi Arabia, opted out. That was a clear signal to other emerging markets with governments coming to Glasgow and the COP conference to hold a firm line against the, uh, the wealthier nations. It's a delicate moment for the world. COP is going on right now. That is supposed to be very centered, but many people are saying it's just a multi-ring circus. I mean, you've got politicians there, activists, celebrities, everybody has their own agenda, everybody has their own booth. Do you think this will be different, that instead of being a circus, instead of being a fodder to get ballots, we really are going to take a positive step in the right direction? There is a lot of theater around any international gathering, but uh, the climate conferences have kind of become their own uh, mini Olympics. And Glasgow, I mean, from the hotel room shortages to the garbage workers going on strike, uh, the, there's no, no end to the theater. Uh, but beyond theater, there is real stuff going on. And that's important to, to recognize. The, the methane pledge, now it's a pledge, but it is a historic commitment to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. That's a big deal. The deforestation agreement is a big deal. Our governments have committed to this. And now it's kind of over to us to say, okay, we, we're going to hold you to account for that. And not just governments, all of us uh, who participate need to hold ourselves to account. So that, I think, is the positive from Glasgow. Should we be concerned about kind of the state of things? Absolutely, because we can't forget about the deadlines, the timelines of, of doing a lot by 2030. We got to get going. There may not be enough sense of urgency. People talk in urgent terms. I'm not sure the commitments coming out of Glasgow are going to be urgent enough to get us where we need to be, but let's see. Some very important nations have stepped out of this saying, that's your problem, not mine. Do you feel that makes people go, well, if they're not into it, why should I be? China is always going to be a big question. Russia and others are uh, question marks as well. And that does raise a bit of skepticism among people and for good reason. You know, if China or Russia or Saudi Arabia are not going to live up to certain standards, well, you know, why should we contort our economies? Uh, some people would see it to uh, get us to where we need to uh, go without those other, other countries. One of the aspects of climate diplomacy, though, that people sometimes overlook is the progress made by developing countries. Well, developing countries actually are doing a lot, and China is doing a lot, as is uh, India. Enough? Well, maybe not, but they're doing more and more each year. We're going to need to invest more, that's public money and private money, uh, in those countries. We're going to have to find ways to get trillions of dollars invested into India and Nigeria and Brazil and on and on to ensure that they are doing what they say they, uh, they want to do, just like we're going to have to do in, in our own countries. But most of the world's capital, financial capital that is, sits in Western countries. So we've got to find ways to mobilize that capital. Do you think it'll take a, an Amazon or a Google or a Spotify type company in climate change that suddenly has a market cap of a trillion dollars to wake up the Western world that this is not only the right thing to do, but there's also 
an opportunity to reinvent your economy with it? I think that's well underway, Tony. It's a great question. But, you know, Tesla, the trillion dollar company, has been an absolute uh, shock and disruptor to the traditional automakers. But it took Tesla. No government was going to be able to, to convince them to do what they're doing. Now they're turning themselves inside out, upside down to catch up. Amazon doing similar stuff. And I think you're spot on. We're going to see lots of these emerging companies and all sorts of spaces in our lives, agriculture, buildings, air, air travel, that are going to reimagine and reinvent those sectors. So it, it is game on. And the countries, the entrepreneurs, the investors who kind of find those opportunities are going to have great success in the decade ahead. So RBC was involved with obviously the water and the ocean. You've now moved in in a complete climate change agenda. John, I'd love to have you back every quarter so that we don't just make this a one-off event when uh, COP is meeting, but we really hold RBC accountable and hold Canada accountable that we are marching in step to that road to net zero. Game on. Let's do it, Tony. I would, uh, I would love that. I began the show talking about my near-death experience and then the others that I've covered in my podcast. Being at that doorstep of death and finding, or in their case, fighting their way back can change everything about how you value your life and how you value the lives around you. Learn about your fragility and mortality and that they're not some faraway place. They are real. And that insight comes wrapped in a gift of life, something that you treasure and respect and embrace and want to protect. But I also asked, how far does humanity have to walk towards the doorstep of death, a path trodden with pollution and abuse of our planet and attacked at greater frequency by climate catastrophe before we realize our collective fragility and mortality? Will it be too late? Will we continue to be ostriches and stick our heads in the sand and push this problem onto future generations in the hope we're okay and they'll figure things out? We've all heard the expression, where there's a will, there's a way. Let me turn that around on you. John Stackhouse and his team at RBC invested a year to mark out a path back from the doorstep of death to one that leads us to becoming net zero as a country. But the cost of this transition will be $2 trillion. They showed us the way. My question is, do we have the will? It won't be a skip in the park. In each of the major pathways John Stackhouse has identified, electricity, oil and gas, agriculture, transportation, buildings, and heavy industry, will need to march with conviction and with confidence. Political leaders will have to stop making climate change rhetoric for winning ballots and instead turn it into policy for driving change. Speed and a bias to action, the counter to bureaucracy and red tape will need to be deployed. The efficient use of our capital from the private sector and the taxpayer will be required. Consumers have to vote with their wallet for people that are making a case and becoming more sustainable, treating the planet with more respect. But if we do race down these paths, we will create an economic renaissance in Canada unlike anything we've ever seen. A renaissance will be marked by Canadian technology and strategies exported around the world to help others realize their fight against climate change. Canadian jobs of a higher purpose will be abundant and investment of intellectual, emotional and financial capital will pour through our country. And future generations, instead of shaming us for leaving them a country bloated in debt and failing productivity, will celebrate us for marching arm in arm across every corner of a society to take on this fight, which might seem impossible, but truly is possible. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.